Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap between what you believe and what you actually experience. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. Now, in this edition of Restoring the Soul, Michael welcomes Brian Zond. Brian is the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. He's also the author of several books, including Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, A Farewell to Mars, and beauty will save the world. Now, on today's podcast, Michael and Brian discuss his latest book, When Everything is on Fire, which seeks to answer the question, is it possible to hold on to faith in an age of unbelief? Now, various solutions exist, and some people will double down on certainty, while others deconstruct their faith until there's nothing left at all. But Brian offers a third way, He thinks that what is needed is not a demolition, but instead a renovation of faith. You can follow Brian on his blog at brianzond.com. That's Brian, Z-A-H-N-D.com. So without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Brian Zond, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mike. It's good to be with you. Uh, I want to introduce you in the words of Wynn Collier in your new book, When Everything's on Fire, Faith Forge from the Ashes, Wynn writes this endorsement. What we need is a wise, unflustered, generous, and disruptive friend. Brian Zond is this kind of friend, engaging wounds inflicted by the church, questions haunting the mind, and those aches deep in the soul. He writes as one who has truly encountered Jesus, even while wrestling in the dark. That that sounds like the kind of thing people would like I'd like people to say it my eulogy. Um, those are really awesome words. And I encountered you first through some mutual friends like Brad Jersick and Paul Young. Um, and I picked up your book, uh, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, which w- unpacked your journey and uh, contrasted it with the classic Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. And I was hooked right, right away. I said, uh, you're speaking my language and this is the the place where my heart has landed above all. But one of the things about your writing and your ministry in Missouri is that your teaching and your writing touches the heart, but it's also so biblically, theologically, and intellectually grounded and stimulating. So once again, thank you. Thank you. 
So will you unpack the story behind your new book? Uh, you and your wife were on your third pilgrimage on the Camino de Santiago. And while there, you had a moving experience, and that's basically where the origins of this book came about. Yeah. Let me set it up like this. Um, we just celebrated the 40th anniversary of our church, and I am the founding pastor, my wife and I. So 40 years, one church. And it's been a long journey. It's been wonderful, but of course, you know, it's hard too, and it's demanding. And even bringing our church beginning maybe about 15, 16, 17 years ago into a better place theologically, that was, again, that was wonderful, but was also painful because you are going to be misunderstood and misrepresented and maligned and all of that when you do that. So um, in 2016, this was our 35th year of pastoring Word of Life Church here in St. Joseph, Missouri, and we took our first you know, extended break. I mean, we'd, you know, we'd go on vacation for two weeks, but we'd never taken anything beyond that. I had never gone more than one week without preaching on a Sunday. <laughs> well, I'm laughing at myself. <laughs> but, so, so in 2016, uh, I won't give the whole story. We walked for the first time the Camino de Santiago on the Francis route. From Saint Jean Pied de Port in France across the Pyrenees into Spain, and you walk almost the entire length of northern Spain. It's a 500 mile pilgrimage. And the name of this podcast is Restoring the Soul, and that's exactly what it did. I can't overemphasize the depth of healing Perry and I found walking the Camino de Santiago. We, you know, sometimes you don't know how hurt you are until you get better <laughs> because the hurt has built up over so long, so long a time, you forgot what it feels like to not have that. And it healed our, it just, it healed our soul in 2016. And so now we love this idea of pilgrimage. We've, I'm just back from doing one in Scotland, Perry and I. Oh, where'd you go? I'm going to uh, Northumbria in June. Yeah, that's where we were. Saint, we walked St. Cuthbert's Way. It begins in Melrose and goes all the way to uh, the Holy Island of Lindisfarne. It's we'll a little short to... one. It's you know, 70 miles. It's a, it's a short pilgrimage. That's what I'm doing in June, so I'm glad that you call it short compared to what you're doing. <laughs> we, we loved it. The first day, I'll tell you, the first day we, we had 15 miles scheduled to do the first day. But because of a navigation error, because it's not quite as marked as well as the <laughs> the Camino in Spain, we went two miles in the wrong direction and then had a turn. So it was a 19 mile the first day, but it was all right. It was we loved it. So anyway, um, then we walked the Portuguese route in 2017. That's 170 miles on the Camino de Santiago, and then we went back in 2019. We just you know we're, I've reached the stage of life where I'm just trying to find excuses. <laughs> to go on some long pilgrimage, and my favorite is the Camino de Santiago. And so for the second time, our, our third Camino pilgrimage, but the second time on the Francis route in the fall of 2019, we're walking on this. And uh, just so our listeners will know, it's it's a medieval pilgrimage route that began maybe as long as 1,200 years ago. Certainly a 1,000 years ago, it was quite popular, and 800 years ago, a half a million people a year were walking uh, to Santiago. 
Now, in medieval pilgrimage, the purpose of pilgrimage is to reach the cathedral where the relics of the saint are there and you can venerate the relics and all of that sort of thing. And I have no comment one way or another on that other than to say that there has been a resurgence. The Camino has, you know, it almost disappeared in the 20th century, but then it's had this resurgence with a quarter of a million people walking it a year and finding all kinds of spiritual richness, whether they are a believer or thoroughly secular. People are walking this. Now, if the purpose in medieval time was to reach the cathedral and venerate the relics, well, that's not the purpose in in modern time. Uh, if I want to, if I want to get to Santiago de Compostela, I can get there in 24 hours on a plane. I don't need to <laughs> walk 500 miles from France. Uh, so the purpose of modern pilgrimage is to bring your soul into a kind of different place, where your life, at least for a season, is reduced to the blessed simplicity of just walking every west, every day westward, and carrying everything you need on your back. And it's it's a simple life that lends to contemplation. So the cliche is true of something like the Camino, that it's not the destination, it's the journey. I mean, that's literally the case, why people walk the Camino. The other thing about the Camino is it is a little bit like a time machine, because you do become quite aware of an earlier epoch. I mean, it is a medieval pilgrim route with all of these churches that are hundreds and sometimes a thousand years old that you encounter regularly because they're just there. And you will probably find lodging at some point in a monastery. Maybe it's still a monastery or maybe it's been converted just into some sort of albergue or something like that. But you you can feel an earlier time. And so for the first Two weeks, we were really thinking about that and talking about that. And I was meditating on we no longer live in a time that is a friend to faith. Now, I'm not trying to be overly romantic about the medieval period. I know it had its own issues, too. But the truth remains that in late modernity, we live in a time where much around us is hostile to faith. And I'm not using this language in culture warm terms. I'm just talking about there is a philosophy of secularism that is an opponent to sustaining a vibrant faith. And I was thinking about that. And I was thinking, well... (laughs) And I, and I know that many people are struggling and losing their faith, or at least their faith seems to be hanging by a thread, and perhaps it's in jeopardy. And I thought, well, if I could walk with some of these people who are having deep questions and, and uh, maybe intimidating doubts about the tenability of their Christian faith, if I could walk with them a day or two on this Camino, what might our conversation be like? I was thinking like that. And then 200 miles, two weeks into this long pilgrimage, we were in uh, Castro Haris, very beautiful hilltop village in northern Spain. And I sat down after our maybe 15 miles that day, sat out on this little terrace by the albergue, and I outlined the 11 chapters and gave it the title, When Everything's on Fire. I mean, that's that kind of came to me first, you know, well, Everything's on fire. What what do we say? What do we do when everything's on fire? And I outlined the 11 chapters, and amazingly, because I took a picture of it, I really stuck to that outline, which is kind of surprising because writing a book usually takes you in many different directions, but this one stayed true to its original inspiration. I didn't really get to start writing it, though, until January. 
had the idea, had the outline, but didn't start till January. So I started in January of 2020 to write, and then pretty soon everything really was on fire. So <laughs> I'd given it the title when everything was on fire, and then everything was on fire. So anyway, that's that's a long rambling response to your question, but that's that's where this book was conceived and how it was conceived. On one level, it's so obvious about what's on fire, but you you wrote this out and. This is one of the few times when I'm actually using the list of publicist questions, because when I've written a book and people are reading the publicist questions, you know that they haven't read the book. And that's the worst interview. Oh, I, 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 I encounter that regularly. Um, so what what is the summary here in the timing of this is prophetic and uncanny and providential. But you said everything was on fire. A global pandemic, an economic crisis, a day of reckoning for American systemic racial injustice, nationwide protests, more police shootings of unarmed black men, more unrest, more scandals in the church, more politicization of the Christian faith, more political vitriol and violence, more inflamed division, more people losing faith. Indeed, everything's on fire. And we can add to that, depending on which side of the aisle you're on, uh, an insurrection or an attack on the Capitol on January 6th, right? Right. And now looking to the forward and saying, you know, what in the world is happening and where is there hope? So the beauty of you outlining this book, it seems to me, is that you were in that contemplative space. You were on this Camino or the way providing what was needed. And that opened up something in you where maybe different to some of your other books that you've been germinating and pondering a long time, that something opened up in you that offers a different way for people, uh, just like the Camino invites you and your wife into a different way. This book is an invitation, not an apologetic. Um, and therefore, respond to that. Like, What are the 30,000-foot level words that you would say to what this different way is when the world's on fire? Well, the first thing I want to say is that suddenly, by suddenly I mean just the last couple of years, it seems like the word deconstruction has erupted in Christian vocabulary. I talk about why it's not my favorite term to, to describe a critical reassessment of our theology that may be necessary, but I still have to engage with the word because it's so you know, pervasive. Um, now, the most unhealthy response to this phenomenon of people struggling to maintain Christian faith in late modernity is to somehow blame them, shame them, be angry at them, scold them, wag a finger at them. It just makes no sense. I, in the book, I, I know I use the line, being angry at modern people for losing their faith is a little bit like being angry at medieval people for dying of the plague. I mean, something has happened. I don't think people just wake up in the morning and say, you know, I think I'll just have a crisis of faith for the fun of it. No, something really has happened. That's why I opened the book with uh, an engagement with Frederick Nietzsche, who I'm quite well read in and who I respect and who I think is a wonderful writer. And I agree with him half the time. <laughs> but half the time I don't agree with him is pretty important, I think. And that's where I lean towards Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky and other people like that. But what is happening is a genuine phenomenon. What I want to say to people is there is a way to survive. 
the tsunami of secularism, if you want to use that metaphor, or when everything is on fire and it seems like that which we once held precious is in danger of being lost to the flames and turned to ashes, there is a way. I'm not just speaking on my own. I mean, I make my own contributions. But this is where I draw upon people like Blaise Pascal and Karl Rahner and uh, Soren Kierkegaard, especially Fyodor Dostoevsky, who at one point said, I believe in Christ, not as some child. My Hosanna has passed through an enormous furnace of doubt. <laughs> and so what I want to just say is that there are sages that understand the situation and have been through it and are willing to help people that say, I, I'm suffering from doubts. I have to rethink this, that, and the other thing. But I think I would like to try to hold on to some faith in Jesus Christ. Can you help me? And the answer is yes, there is help. Thank you for that. And that reminds me, as you so fluidly quote uh, Nietzsche, uh, an existential agnostic or atheist, and then you go to Kierkegaard, a Christian existentialist, and then Karl Rahner, uh, a German cardinal and, and Catholic priest, uh, and and that your own journey within your church that you've led all these years is one where you have, I don't like the word uh, syncretism, because that's pejorative, but where you've blended a lot of different traditions from historic Christianity. So that's kind of the lens that you bring to this conversation. Is that correct? Well, yeah, and that's very intentional. Uh, our story is, I mean, I'm a convert from the Jesus movement. I was a long-haired Zeppelin freak that encountered Jesus and became a Jesus freak, although I still like Zeppelin. And, Houses uh, of the Holy. I saw your Twitter post that the all-time greatest rock and roll album, Houses of the Holy. And I follow your writing on Dylan. So... Uh, that's that's a sidetrack. But yeah, that's who you were. These are influences in my life. And by the time I was 17, just a year after encountering Jesus, I was leading a ministry. It was a coffee house. It was mostly a music venue for the Jesus music scene that turned into our church. I mean, I was by the time I was 18, I was effectively doing the work of a pastor. I don't recommend this. I'm not saying it was a good idea. You had to be there to understand it, but it just happened. And so we are a non-denominational church that came out of the Jesus movement with roots then, you know, in the charismatic movement, that sort of thing. Well, as I really went through my own theological reevaluation, my transition, my water-to-wine experience of finding a much richer, deeper, more historically rooted faith, I became, I mean, I'll just say it like this, Michael. I'm the pastor of a non-denominational church, and I don't even really believe in that. <laughs> I don't think it's a great idea. It's just what happened. My only defense is it's what happened. So I have been very intentional about being very ecumenical. I look at the body of Christ like this. I'm not saying this is objectively the case, but it's my own view. I see the body of Christ as basically like a seven-branch menorah consisting of Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Anglican Communion, Protestant, Anabaptist, Evangelical, and Pentecostal charismatic. I 
sincerely love all seven traditions. I sincerely could imagine myself fully belonging to any of the seven. I understand how that works. And I know that that I see each one as custodians of various treasures. And since I really don't, I mean, I guess by default, I guess I am some version of Protestant, but I'm not protesting anything. And yes, I am. My roots are within the charismatic world, but I didn't want to stay limited to that. So I've read very widely, made friends. I had one year a couple of years ago where I spoke in all seven of those expressions. And it's fairly remarkable for someone like me to be invited to speak at an Eastern Orthodox conference, but it happened. (laughs) (laughs) So I have no desire to convert anybody from one branch to another. If I can be used in any way to help people have a more vibrant relationship with Jesus, that's fine. I understand understand that there will be the stories of some people will find life from going from you know, being a Roman Catholic to being some kind of evangelical, I get it, but I also know it works the other way. Sometimes you'll see people that are evangelical, and for them, life was to find orthodoxy or Catholicism. I have nothing but affection for the best of all of these traditions, and so I I, I appreciate that you recognize that about me, but I'm being very intentional with it. Yeah, so the word that's coming to my mind now, rather than eclectic or syncretic, is confluence where different streams come together and they flow into one. And what what are the nuggets of uh, bottom line truth that with all of those different branches, when you say to help people know Jesus, you're not talking about to believe in God or simply to believe, say, therefore, I'm a Christian— but you're talking about integrating something at a much deeper level internally, because you speak about how do you believe when the world's on fire. But I, I think you would agree with me that belief is not about the existence of God or the truth of a creed, but about what God is like and what his very nature is. And yeah. is he in control? And is he good? And is he present? And that kind of thing. Well, one of the things I talk about quite a bit in the book is the effect that the Enlightenment and its subsequent devotion to empiricism has had upon us. Uh, it's it, Unless you intentionally try to understand the time in which you live, you're somewhat oblivious to it because you've not lived in any other time. And it takes something of a historical perspective to understand the uniqueness of our own time. We are living in what most people would describe as late modernity. We're toward the end of it, probably. Um, it begins, if you want to pick a date, I think you could pick 1638, the publication of, Bla- of, uh, of uh, Descartes, Rene Descartes' uh, Discourse on Method. And I, I don't want to go be too philosophical here, but what happens is empiricism wins the day. I have no quibble with empiricism. It's great if you want to invent iPhones or figure out how to do podcasts, you know, while I'm in St. Joseph, Missouri, and you're in Denver. I don't know of any scientific theory that is any, you know, credible threat to my Christian faith. So I have no problem with that, except to say, except to say that when empiricism, by which we mean evaluating the phenomenon of being through the five physical senses and however they can be amplified— when empiricism has 
investigated the cosmos and the phenomenon of being and said everything it has to say, there's still more that remains to be said. And the effect, and, and and so you have you have the early empiricists, but these are cutting edge thinkers. But now, I'm, this isn't the 17th, 18th, 19th century. We're you know well into the 21st century. This way of thinking has filtered down into virtually everyone in the Western world. And to make it as simple as I can say it, we've all been kicked up inside our head. We're all up inside our head. And now faith is sort of a way that we imagine that faith is a way that we think, and that's all it is. And we think that we have to be able to, in the terms of empiricism, verify empirically what we claim to believe. And this creates the phenomenon of pop apologetics, which I think is mostly unhelpful. I think it's mostly uh, it's kind of a niche market to soothe nervous Christians. But, you know, I think most college students that have a little background in philosophy can tear most of that apart. I don't think it's very helpful. And so I think the solution is, is that we recognize that fine, rational thought. I'm all for it. Rock on all day. But don't forget there's another part of our being that we can call spirit or maybe we call heart that we have somewhat abandoned. And so that's why I refer to Blaise Pascal, who was, I mean, he's not an opponent to rationalism. I mean, he's one of the greatest mathematical minds ever. <laughs> you know, he's known as the the father of the modern computer. He understood the value of reason but also he'd had his own mystical spiritual experience with Christ. And in his pensee, he gives us this famous axiom, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. And so I think part of what needs that, instead of endlessly thinking about God, which has its merit, this is, this is what we call theology, and I engage in that, that's fine. But it's no substitute for actually experiencing God. And so one of the things I would say, in the time in which we live, faith will not be sustained by some sort of dogged allegiance to a tradition or by endless intellectual arguments. It's going to be sustained by an experience. And this is what Karl Rahner said in 1971. He said, the Christian of the future will be a mystic, that is, someone who has experienced something, or they will cease to be anything at all. And what Carl Rahner called the future 50 years ago, I think is what we call today. And I think what we're seeing in the phenomenon of people struggling and sometimes losing the struggle to hold on to faith is the inadequacy of trying to sustain faith through tradition and intellect alone. And that if faith is going to be preserved, Carl Rahner's right, it needs to be grounded in experience. And this is what we mean by mysticism. I know people get scared of that word. They think, you know, it's some new age occultism or something. It's simply, a mystic is simply someone who seeks and at some level attains an experience within the mystery of God. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy 
for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.